gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And this week, we have Wendy Alsup with us, and we've had you on before, so we're happy to have you again, on again. And um, we're going to talk to her about her new book, Companions in Suffering, Comfort for Times of Loss and Loneliness. And I, I wanted to say one thing I really appreciated about this book, which we have both Rachel and I highly recommend the book, is just how transparent you were. Um, I was telling Rachel earlier that I've been through my own season of suffering um, with, with severe health issues and lost to death several people close to us in a short period. And I could just relate to so many of the things that that you talked about and just appreciated how honest you were because I know some of the things you talked about aren't easy to talk about. So just before we get started, Wendy, for those not familiar with you, could you just share a little bit um, about yourself and maybe mention some of the other books you've written too? Yeah, thanks for having me, um, Rachel and Colleen. And yeah, so I'm a math teacher at our local community college. I'm a single mom of um, two middle school boys, or actually one's in high school now. And, um, you know, so I'm a working single mom, not, you know, exactly how I wanted to do it, but it's God has provided and I'm thankful for it. And I've been started writing back when I was um, a stay-at-home mom um, and I was a deacon of women's theology and training at a big church in Seattle and had the opportunity to start writing there. Um, and since then, um, I started a blog and it kind of resonated with folks and I've had the opportunity to write a few more books. So um, I'm not sure which is my full-time job, writing or <laughs> math teaching, but I kind of have two. <laughs> In writing this one, Companions and Suffering, 
what experiences that you went did you go through that led you to write this book? Well, um, I really started thinking about long-term suffering that doesn't resolve after our the church at which I was a deacon and really found vibrant ministry really collapsed in a spectacularly horrible way. And I kept expecting it to resolve, kept expecting it to resolve, kept, you know, and really the gospel, you know, that should resolve, we should be able to reconcile it never did. And I started really wrestling with God about long-term suffering and then um, a few years after that, I entered a season in my own marriage that resulted in a divorce I did not want. And then as I was picking, and again, even in that, I just kept thinking, this is, you know, this is going to resolve. Reconciliation works, you know. And then after that, as I was getting back on my feet um, as a single mom, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And that was the, that was the one that probably really kicked me into the hole. I mean, the divorce kicked me into a hole, Mm -hmm. but um, I don't know. The breast cancer diagnosis was like kicking you in the face as you try to climb out the hole and breaking all your front teeth or something, you know, like breaking your jaw or something. It was just that kind of suck you in the gut kind of feeling because it was on top of an already sock you in the gut kind of feeling. And so it really was the suffering upon suffering and trying to come up for air and figure out how to live again. That really brought me to the place of writing the book. And a lot of it was just me processing. I I write on my blog and I call it lectures to myself, but it's really me processing in my own head what, what are my lectures to myself? What am I understanding myself? And then I, I generally find a, there's some people who really resonate with it and it's helpful to share it, but it all starts just as an internal conversation with God as I try to figure out my place in the world in light of these new circumstances. Well, and I, I think the book is helpful for almost anyone or for anyone just because all of us have suffering and trials. What you went through is maybe more severe than what people go through, but I think there's really something for everyone in this book. But what would you say is the main message of the book and what you're trying to convey to readers? The main message I wanted to convey is that you are not alone. Because one of the main things I felt was alienation. And I remember walking like into our church in Seattle when um, my divorce was approaching. And we had come for many years to this church as a family of four. And now it was just a family of three, me and my two boys coming to church. And I felt so other. I felt alienated. And it was not a function of what my church did. Looking back, I was really well supported, but there was an alienation in my own head. I had changed and my headspace had changed. And I found it similarly after I was diagnosed with breast cancer coming back into my church in South Carolina. I just felt so different. Like they were going on with their lives and they were compassionate. They cared about me, but I felt so different. And um, it was that alienation that to me was about the hardest thing um, in the whole thing. 
And it wasn't an alienation that people, well-meaning people could necessarily address because it was an alienation in my own head. And um, what I want folks reading this book to know is that when you are physically alone in those deepest moments where you feel like no one gets it or things have fundamentally changed, nothing is the same, you really aren't alone. And I love the promise Jesus gave his disciples um, and John, uh, you know, in that high priestly prayer, John 14 through 17, where he says, I will not leave you as orphans. And I felt like an orphan. I felt like an orphan left to navigate a road on my own, and I had no idea how to do it. And Jesus's words met me in it, and I had to cling to it. I haven't left you as an orphan. I haven't left you alone to navigate this thing all by yourself. And I hope that the book will just be a, a companion to point sufferers to the companionship we have with Christ and in his word and through the Holy Spirit and in the body of Christ with others who have suffered. Really very moving. The, there are different seasons of my life that, uh, well, I haven't been through the same suffering that you have. There are different seasons in my life that were seasons of suffering that I could relate to various things that you said about, especially the, the feeling of other alienation. The um, I had a my last pregnancy was um, was really bad, really hard, and I was stuck at home for months and months and months, and I couldn't get out and I couldn't see people, and you know I was sick all the time. And in that time, you know I missed things. I missed Easter and birthdays, and you know things I couldn't go to, things I couldn't be part of. And so I, when you talk about that alienation, that was mostly like in yourself. Right, people were around me. People were helping me. People reached out, but I felt alone. And um, so that reminder that we are never alone, even though we feel alone, uh, was really um, comforting me to read in what you wrote. In one part, you talk about in Isaiah, it says that the Messiah would be well acquainted with grief, and again, like you said, he doesn't right. leave us orphans. Right? How do the sufferings of our Savior comfort us? How has it comforted you? Um, I, I talk about it a little bit in the book, but I had a one night, particularly um, in the ICU after my mastectomy. I had a, when I had my mastectomy, I had what they called immediate reconstruction, on, um, where they they reconstructed my breast um, using my own tissue and muscles. And I didn't know going into it what a big surgery that was, but I spent three nights in the ICU in incredible pain, very drugged up. And I had sweet people that stayed with me in the ICU, but I had one night that I was alone and I was in deep pain on a morphine pump and I could only give myself a shot like every 10 minutes and I couldn't sleep at all. I would fall asleep and then I'd wake back up in pain and it hadn't yet been long enough to give myself the shot. And it was a really brutal night. And I remember how comforted I was. I really feel like, you know, Jesus almost whispered. I don't necessarily believe in that per se, but as close as possible, whispered to me in the moment, you know, I know, I know what you're going through. And I just thought, about him suffering on the cross 
without pain medicine. And he didn't do it for his own healing, but for mine. And I got a taste, you know, because I, I was in a lot of pain, but I even had pain medicine. And I was cut open so that I could live. And he was brutalized so I could live. He, he didn't receive benefit from his brutalization. And he did it without pain medicine. And I just got a new, uh, just, it moved my heart to consider the Garden of Gethsemane. And, what, and, and it wasn't um, like a negative, like, you know, bucket up, Wendy. You know, <laughs> if Jesus did this, you can endure that. It was, no, he loved me that much. That's how much he loved me. You know, like if I had been going through this for my son, Maybe I was going through that kind of pain because I gave a kidney to my child and I did it without pain medicine. <laughs> then I might understand even more of what he had gone through. But just that he went through that kind of pain because he loved me. And it ended up really being such sweet fellowship at a very intensely disturbing night that could have been the darkest night of my soul. And instead he met me in it in a way that really sustained me. And that memory has helped me um, and blessed me because of understanding his suffering better. Um, it helped me carry my own. I, I had an experience, um, and I've spent a lot of time in the hospital, but I had an experience that was like that, the worst night of my life, <laughs> the, the pain. And um, I almost died that night, but and my experience different than yours, but the Lord used that so much in my life. Um, even in the worst of it, I felt the most peace and comfort that I ever had. But one of the things I appreciate you talk about, because I've thought about this a lot, is just the loneliness and alienation and suffering, even alienating yourself. been through that a lot. Could you talk about that a little bit? Because it's, it's, you describe it very well. And I appreciated you being so open and transparent about that. Yeah, I felt a lot of times like I was on the outside looking in. And so I try to use a metaphor of this metaphor throughout the book of feeling outside, watching all of the happy, normal people going on with their life. And, you know, really, I know if I really examine it, that that's not reality that most of the quote-unquote happy normal people which we see on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram that's just what they're putting forward they have grave sadness in their own lives very few people are really not struggling but that was the feeling I had um, that I had been kind of kicked out of the room um, the door shut and I was watching all the people enjoying their lives going on with their lives through the window and um, so it helped me to just own it. That's how I feel. My life has set me on a different path. And I'm just going to have to own it, live it, but also believe I'm not living it by myself. I'm not living it without help. I'm not an orphan to figure out what it looks like to live abundantly outside the happy room of happy people. And so that's really been the benefit to me to, to face it head on. Something has changed. 
but and I really cling to the name. I love the name Joseph gave to his son Ephraim because I've been fruitful in the land of my affliction. And I cling to that name because I just want to I want to stop feeling alienated. I want to get out of the affliction. I want the affliction to end. But um, Joseph's naming his son that way really just gave me a vision that, you know, you can be alienated, but that doesn't mean you, you aren't going to be fruitful, that there, there are relationships to be had. There is companionship in the scripture. There is purpose. And Joseph owned the affliction. I'm sure he wanted the affliction to end. It didn't afflict. It didn't end. And yet he recognized that God had allowed him to be fruitful in even that place. And that's such a, a hopeful name for us when we are feeling alienated. One of the things that you mentioned kind of early in the book is talking about how even growing up in, you know, strong evangelical churches and background that you had um, unwittingly imbibed a, a prosperity gospel idea about what life would be like. Right? And so what would you say is you know, that connection that you made between suffering and prosperity gospel and, and the truth? I feel like, at least in youth groups growing up and at Bible college, I think that people, and also, you know, into um, megachurch life in Seattle, where we were in a church with a lot of young people. And I think we are working so hard to try to get young people to make good choices early on in their life that we, um, we are not careful to talk about it as wisdom we are, we're so much more likely to speak of it as look at this person who made these bad choices and now look at the result in their life. And we use it as a cause and effect. And that set me up to really believe that if I made all the right choices in my youth and Bible college days, then I would be set up for a stable, peaceful life. And so when trouble started coming, even with my breast cancer diagnosis and certainly with my divorce, I just self-examined so much. And I was just so um, stressed by this idea. What did I do to bring this on myself? You know, where did I drop the ball? And I've had to cling so much to there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I've also had to really believe my pastors and elders um, when they, you know, will say, well, they're not confronting me about a sin. I'm, I'm not sinless, but I've, I've come to recognize I don't believe I had breast cancer because I was unfaithful to God. I don't believe I'm divorced because I dropped all kinds of balls in my marriage that sometimes these things come to you despite righteous choices, um, not to set myself up as a, someone who was, um, you know, always has never sinned. But I have a pretty sensitive conscience and the Lord convicts me and I try not to have known sin in my life that I don't address. And so I had to learn. I mean, it's like Joseph and, and the Bible gives us the story of Job. So we shouldn't even worry, wonder about it because it's so clear in the book of Job that sometimes God allows trials, not 
because of your disobedience, but in Job's case, it was actually because of his righteousness. And so the entire point was that Satan is telling God, Job only worships you because you're good to him. And God says, no, Job worships me because I am God and I am worthy of worship. And um, Job helped me so much um, to see God's um, clear communication. This is not because of Job's sin. And then also how God allowed Job's wrestling and he never condemned him. You know, he, he corrected him, but he never really condemned or rebuked him. And um, he rebuked his friends but not Job in the same way. And so that was really helpful to me mentally to kind of slough off this old view that I had picked up in youth group, make the right choices, have the good outcome. It's really, that's not what God promises. And when I was reading that, I was thinking how much it's, at least for me, and I think others natural to have that kind of prosperity gospel. If I parent correctly, my kids are going to turn out perfect. If I, do this, you know, and I, I went through that. What, you know, naturally, what did I do that I have to suffer like this? Why does that other person over there not suffer like I do? Um, right. And, and some of that. But uh, one of the things you talk about is the comfort of others and even some situations where someone had been through suffering, not the same thing as you, but they had suffered something and how that was helpful, the comfort that you received from that. So can you talk about how our experiences with suffering can help comfort others? Yeah, I think that um, that passage on, you know, when we have been comforted, we are able to comfort others and all kinds of their trials gives us some helpful insight into um, what's possible with other sufferers. And it's not always going to be that way. But I found for me personally, the folks that there didn't have to be a one-to-one correlation. You know, it wasn't just people that had been divorced or people that had been breast, had breast cancer. But I had a group of friends that I assembled on Facebook and every one of them had suffered in a deep way and every one of them, it was different. Um, one was is confined, confined to a wheelchair. Um, one, two of them actually lost their dad unexpectedly in their youth. And, um, you know, various trials that had affected them, but none of them were the exact same as mine. And yet I knew these folks had suffered And they weren't going to offer, and they had kept their faith. Their faith was intact through their suffering, but they were not um, going to try to offer me easy, pat answers. They were the kind of folks that I knew could endure with my cries out um, and could have faith for me as I wrestled to have faith for myself and were just compassionate listeners. And that group really, really blessed me um, to share with them my burdens. It is a real blessing to have um, other believers come alongside us and, and share with us in our suffering and, and, and rejoice with us in our, our, the ways we overcome when those things happen as well. Um, you mentioned about how these were friends who had gone through suffering and survived with their faith intact. And how, how would you say suffering challenges our faith? 
Well, I think it, you know, it is that purification process. Um, it is the refiner's fire under our pot of gold, and it raises the impurities to the top. And that's an old illustration, but I can't think of any better one. It burns off our poor understanding of God. And like it did for Job and Satan in the book of Job, it refines why we worship God. Do we worship God because he is God? Or do we worship God in a transactional thing? You know, if I obey him, I think he's going to bless me. Um, And I think our testimony in heaven has to be, I obey God because he's God and he is worthy of worship. And even if I don't get to see the beauty of his holiness or his blessings until I get to heaven, he is still worthy to be worshipped. And um, that's really a beautiful place to get to in your faith. You know, the, the end of the book of Job is beautiful between God and Job. It's hard. The whole book of Job is hard. And it was hard for me to read when I was suffering at my most intense points. But finally making it through Job's cries and finally getting to those words at the end, it was beautiful and helpful to me. Wendy, what are some things that really have brought you comfort Um as you've gone through this, but maybe also an encouragement that you can give to somebody listening that's really going through a difficult time right now? One of the things we haven't talked about yet today, but I've really found helpful was, I talk about in the book, the cloud of witnesses. Um, So the Christians that have gone on before us, and I've found such encouragement reading biographies of like Elizabeth Elliot, Amy Carmichael, Um, Those were the two that particularly um, meant a lot to me. I've enjoyed some um, previously, but during this season, Amy Carmichael's A Chance to Die by Elizabeth Elliot, um, her perseverance through crushing blow after crushing blow. There were moments when I read Amy Carmichael's story, and I was crushed by it too. Lord, why? Why did you allow this? Why did you allow this? But then also to hear um, Elizabeth Elliot recount Amy's writings during that time and her ministry that still continued really, really blessed me. And I just thought of Amy as a, a witness. She was a witness to God's faithfulness to me and a witness to the fact that God allows us and helps us and equips us to endure even when the suffering doesn't let up. And I found the same, particularly, I love Elizabeth Elliot's These Strange Ashes. That book really ministered to me because um, it's about her first missionary journey and it ended really badly, really badly. And really the whole thing just seemed to be burned up in the ashes And it was her wrestling with God over 
the ashes of the ministry that she found herself in the middle of. And it was so helpful to me to read this witness who had gone on before me and sat in a pit of ashes from the life she thought she was building as I sat in the the ash heap of my my home, my, my marriage. And the faithfulness of God to see her through even that and the, um, you know, the purification of her faith, that her faith came out even stronger. And um, those those two biographies um, in particular were very, very helpful to me. One of the things that uh, I thought was really in the practically practical side of helpful uh, in the book is at the very end you have an appendix talks about um, ways that we can help someone who is suffering. And, you know, you know, Colleen and I have talked about this before. We've talked about it in, you know, the things, you know, we've had pregnancy loss and other things where, you, you know, what can you do for someone? But what are some things that you found are real, really practical ways that we can come alongside someone who's suffering and help them? Well, I talk about needs being they're like circles of needs. Like you have folks that they're the closest, most involved. And then you need a really a second level of folks that are kind of the trellis to help hold up the first, depending on, you know, what kind of intense time of suffering you're in. Everybody needs food. Um, and if you're physically struggling, uh, someone paid to clean my house. That was so helpful. Oh my gosh, that was so sweet. And some ladies came over and cleaned out my pantry once, but they would just offer things specific, not call me if you need something. That's so unhelpful. That is so unhelpful because I didn't know what I needed, but I had people that could think of something that had been helpful to them and they would call me with, hey, could we blah, blah, blah. Could we do this? Could we do that? And um, I would let them know what sounded helpful and what didn't. And, you know, a really great thing for me was someone offering to take my kids and do something with them other than them sitting playing video games in my house while I recovered on the sofa. And I had several uh, people that took my kids out for meaningful outings to do things. Friends that took them to the fair, friends that took them to see the... um, Star Wars movie that came out, you know, friends that took them to the state museum. And um, those things meant a lot to me because I had a pretty significant portion of time where inside our four walls was not that fun a place to be. During, during my divorce, it was a sad place to be. And then during my recovery after breast cancer, I just I couldn't do much for them and I was resting so much. So that was a real practical help. So offering something practical. The other thing, um, I really think if you're going to help someone who's suffering, you need to make sure you are not doing it so you feel good about yourself. Because I would have these points where I felt like um, if someone called me and realized I actually was doing badly, but I hadn't let them know. Um, I almost like I, they would guilt me, you know, well, why didn't you let me know? Why didn't you tell me? I, you know, well, I, now I feel really bad. Well, I, I don't know, but helping me can't be about you feeling good or bad. 
because I can't endure with that right now. So how about you get the gospel worked out in your own heart? And then when you don't feel condemnation and you're just ready to be helpful as needed, let me know and, and offer some things and I'll try to keep you posted. But sometimes I don't feel like keeping people posted. Um, so if I started feeling bad again, well, I was feeling bad. And probably what I did was go to bed, you know, or just sit on the sofa like a lump. I I wasn't feeling like texting or calling or even thinking of it that way. And so I found, um, and it was often my friends that had suffered that really got that, who would just call with a practical suggestion or call and specifically say, what do you need? And if I had a pressing need, I could say, I need this. And if I didn't, they would start offering, do you need meals? Do you need house cleaning? Do you need me to take the kids somewhere? And those kind of um, specific uh, suggestions I found really, really helpful. I'm glad you mentioned um, that it's not helpful to say, call me if you need anything. Um because it, it just isn't. And I, I've experienced the same thing that that you did. I've told the story before when I had my appendix out and I, I got home. I was in the hospital for a few days and I get home from the hospital and um, there's three women from my church and they are doing my laundry and cooking food for the, for the week and taking care of my children. Um, but also I... I've talked to my best friend's been through a lot and I've talked to her and sometimes all you want is someone just to cry with you and love you. Um, right. Right. Well, this, this book is really helpful. I think it's helpful really for anyone, even with those practical tips, maybe, you know, somebody that's really going through a hard time and there will be things in this to help you understand a little bit more what they're going through and ways that you can help. Um, but also, you know, Everybody goes through suffering and trials of different degrees. So um, we'll link it in the episode notes. Wendy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. I really enjoyed it.